Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. So we've got two episodes this week, which is quite nice. Um, uh, as I promised, I said I would uh, go out to the, the Climate Summit uh, last week and uh, see if I could come back with some interviews. Um, so uh, I have done that. And uh, uh, we uh, we have uh, Dan Life, uh, my producer, to uh, to thank for the fact that we have a second uh, podcast episode this week based on the interviews because the, uh, the sound conditions were challenging, to say the least. But um, Dan has worked some magic and uh, and you have uh, not only uh, a useful but a listenable uh, episode uh, based on those interviews. Um, three people who uh, I think can uh, explain to us and, and make accessible to us just how easy it is to have impacts at those um, apparently unattainable scales. A lot of us think that, yeah, I could never work at that kind of scale. That's just way beyond my reach. And yeah, these are just real people like you and me with needs, um, uh, very often evidence needs. And uh, and if that's the case and you've got the relevant evidence, then, hey, uh, there are very real opportunities to connect with these people. Now, in the first part of this uh, podcast, um, kind of three-part series here on uh, on getting your research into policy, I thought about the kind of philosophical or, or moral underpinnings of how we engage with policy, and I talked about four ways in which you can inadvertently uh, cross a line, uh, and this is an ethical or moral red line, uh, between uh, just influencing uh, policy based on your evidence through to something that might be perceived more like manipulating uh, policy. Uh, of course, something that none of us want to ever be accused of or uh, end up doing, whether inadvertently or not. Uh, and I promised that I would get more practical. So uh, this week I'm going to, to think in, uh, in more practical terms. Uh, I'm going to draw briefly from uh, some of the practical lessons uh, I learned um, from uh, from my mistakes as well as my uh, my successes uh, last week um, at the UN, and um, and then I'm going to uh, talk you through some of the key things that you need to get right if you want to write a really powerful policy brief that will work, uh, and how you can then take that policy brief and whatever else you've got to uh, to them. Uh, work uh, in a kind of I'm calling it the pincer movement. That might sound uh, a little bit uh, ominous, but uh, but yeah, working from the bottom up and the top down, how you can um, do this in a way that that, that really works in, in very practical terms. Um, uh, and as I suggested in the first part, um, as I, I move through the episode today, and by the time we get to the end of this, we're, we're going to be moving more relational uh, by by the moment. Uh, and uh, as we get more relational, more influential, and uh, and of course, at the same time, we are increasing our risks. Uh, this is in particular risks to our time and to our reputation, um, but uh, but potentially more than that as well. Uh, so uh, so we, we're going to take a, a, co- a careful approach to this. This is my plan. Um, so uh, for me, uh, the. Uh, the, the, the climate summit last uh, last week was was massively successful um, in terms of uh, trying to uh, work with my colleagues. And this is not just me, but a, a group of researchers uh, and colleagues from the charity that I work with to try and help the international policy process uh, and uh, do that in a way that is evidence based, based on research by myself and uh, and many others. 
Um, uh, and, uh, and so I came back uh, with a whole load of really important opportunities over the next two years to feed into an international programme called the Global Peatlands Initiative that uh, has uh, three main strands. Um, and uh, my colleagues and I, um, with me acting as a knowledge broker to many other researchers, uh, able to feed in directly to that process uh, to... Uh, form part of what will be the first ever global assessment of peatlands, which will then uh, feed into uh, not only UN policy processes, but national policy processes uh, around the world. Um, for me, the, the lesson here uh, was, was very simply being um, in the right place at the right time with the right person and being available and willing to help. Uh, now, uh, through my kind of ongoing stakeholder analysis um, and just engagement with this particular field, uh, I knew that this initiative uh, was coming along. Uh, I knew that they were interested in our research because they'd contacted the UK government um, a number of years ago, who'd put them in touch with me. Um, uh, and so I'd worked out who were the key people who were in charge of this, and I decided, yeah, I need to go and talk to these people face-to-face, -face, just hoping for the best, hoping that these people have indeed found out about our research and practice and policy and all the cool things going on in the UK uh, and that they understand the potential relevance of this internationally. Uh, that's not something I want to leave to chance. I want to, to really make sure that, that I connect with these people and have a chance to discuss. Uh, so, so for me, this was a valuable enough um, uh, impact opportunity that uh, I was uh, willing to fly to Nairobi for a day, and uh, it would have actually literally been a, a day trip to Nairobi, um, uh, and uh, and connect with at least one of these people. Uh, I still have a, a, a trip planned to Rome for the day, um, and uh, well, I'll, I will stay overnight actually in Rome, but uh, it's going to be a, a very brief visit there. Uh, and for me, this was worth doing uh, in terms of my impact, because I could see that these were two people who had the potential to use my research, um, so I thought, uh, in ways that could have global impact. Um, uh, so uh, when I got the opportunity to uh, meet this person in Poland instead, uh, in return for doing a presentation at her side event, then uh, of course uh, this was a bit of a, a no-brainer. So uh, yes, the right time, the right place, but this was um, not just random chance, this was based on a kind of a strategic prioritisation of who might be the one person or one of two people that I really need to connect with to understand where they are at to really position this work uh, in a way that, that will have impact. Um, so that's my first message. Uh, I think uh, the, the, the second message um, uh, for me was uh, is perhaps uh, less positive. Um, I, I've talked, I think, in this podcast, if not, it's on my blog, uh, about how uh, I take this uh, interview-based approach to get evidence-based testimonials for uh, REF impact case studies. Uh, but if you want to, uh, whether it's REF or something else, you want to prove that you've got an impact, well, I might say that I've, uh, I've influenced uh, policy. Uh, great. Do you have to take my word for it? Well, no, because I'm going to interview someone who I can explore this with in depth and really find out whether or not this is something that um, is significant, whether it's had uh, reach, and whether this can indeed be attributed back to my research. Uh, and so based on the fact that uh, I knew that a few years ago that this UN initiative had reached out to the UK government, um, and that they had then put them onto uh, my research and the research of others who had fed into a particular policy mechanism, I thought, well, there is credible... Um, 
a credible argument here that we may well have already had quite a lot of impact and shaped this this program. Uh, and so uh, I interviewed uh, this uh, this person, and um, uh, and embarrassingly, uh, it turned out that actually no. Uh, we haven't had any impact yet at all. Um, uh, well, yeah, we, I can probe and I probed, and if you thought hard enough and long about this, you, long enough about this, you could find an indirect pathway to uh, back to our research. But this was not really credible, uh, and for me, this was actually really quite embarrassing. That here I am, um, uh, supposedly trying to, uh, to, to to help you, uh, and at the same time, I'm asking you if you've already had impact, and we haven't. Um, and and yeah, that took a bit of um, uh, getting over in terms of my own. Uh, my own ego, and uh, but also in terms of the trust that you know, I am here genuinely because I want to help, not just because I want to harvest things for some government assessment. Um, uh, and I hope that my my heart shone through with that. Um, and she certainly said that she understood, appreciated the need for researchers to be able to evaluate this kind of stuff. Um, uh, uh, the other uh, thing that, that for me uh, was uh, was fairly bruising was the the fact that my presentation went uh, went wrong. Um, uh, uh, so I got a fairly long uh, long string of embarrassing uh, situations uh, in in high high level uh, situations. So um, in this particular case, uh, five minutes before we were on, we discovered that um, that my uh, my presentation had been corrupted. Uh, so there were no video, no, no video, no um, no images. It was just all completely messed up. So I went into the booth to uh, try and find a plan B, which was we'll download it from Dropbox. It'll all be fine. Found the file, started downloading it and it said three hours and counting um, so then we're like right we need to find a way around this uh, hotspot we got a hotspot three minutes and counting phew okay so uh, I need to get out there again because I'm going to be up and I'll trust that it will all be fine and sadly it wasn't uh, I had selected uh, an old version of my file that I'd, uh, I'd made the day before and uh, this was uh, I'd saved this in this particular place for some reason um, uh, when I'd gotten about halfway through making my slides, uh, and then the whole of the rest of my flight uh, and that evening I'd worked on this other presentation in a different place on my on my laptop, uh, and then the, and that morning I'd gotten up early and I'd rehearsed all the timings there were various animations I'd gotten it perfect, uh, but that presentation was nowhere to be seen. What I got was uh, my my half finished presentation, uh, and already in the first half I'm thinking no this is really suspicious all these timings are wrong oh my goodness multitasking oh what's going to happen next and then yeah halfway through my slides that was it no more slides um, so I looked back at the video and uh, you know what I, I managed to uh, to bring it back from the rink um, but uh, but it was a, a decidedly mediocre presentation uh, and not the slick and impressive uh, presentation that I had hoped to wow my audience with um, uh, so the question I've got for you is, is when you put yourself out here, you take these kind of risks, uh, then, well, hey, it doesn't always work out and things will go wrong. This is the risk that you take when you engage at these high levels and you put yourself out there. How do you recover from that? Uh, do you just go into a hole and uh, and chastise yourself? Uh, I was pretty angry with myself, uh, and I will confess I did not sleep well that night on the basis of just being so, so annoyed with myself for making such a stupid mistake. Um, but uh, but for me, it was really important that I bounce back. So as soon as I'd managed to get some sleep and woke up and got myself into my right mind, for me, this was about focusing back in on my core priorities. And my core priority in life is that I want 
to make a difference. I want and I believe that it is possible through my research that even if this is one person, one organisation, one system, something small, it is possible to make the world a better place. Uh, and as I reflected on my whole visit to the to, to the UN conference, uh, it was for me about zooming in on those conversations where we realised that, yeah, you need all of this stuff. This is stuff that I can do or I can find people who can do. We can, working together, make an enormous difference on a global scale. Uh, and that's where I've gone to in my head. Um, uh, and it's not that I've uh, ignored uh, the the, uh, the things that went wrong. I I'm learning lessons um, uh, that uh, I need to be a little bit uh, more more humble and uh, and slow when it comes to uh, uh, evaluating my impacts and preparing uh, uh, myself for uh, for these uh, for these kinds of high stakes events. I need a, a, a proper plan be sorted out in advance. Uh, so uh, so yeah. We can learn from our mistakes, but that doesn't mean we have to constantly beat ourselves up for them. <clears throat> so um, uh, let's move into some of these more practical things. That's what I learned uh, from the practical experience of going out there and trying to do this stuff, uh, partly succeeding, partly failing. Um, uh, but, uh, but more generalizably, policy briefs um, uh, and then this interpersonal stuff, but practical, how can you actually go about doing this stuff successfully? Um, uh, as a, a bit of a, um, a disclaimer, is it a disclaimer? Uh, um, anyway, uh, I, I mentioned this in part one, but in case you've not listened to part one yet, it's important that I say that uh, some of the things as we kind of go down this relational spectrum will become more and more um, about influencing policy with our evidence, a much higher risk. Um, and I think that it's important that we know that we're doing this stuff over and above the standard mechanisms for engaging with whatever policy organisation um, uh, we're working with. Uh, and so whatever organisation it is, there will be standard mechanisms, consultations, inquiries, whatever it is that you need to go through if you want to influence um, the, the decisions of that particular body. Um, uh, and you can find that out on the web normally, uh, depending on what country you're working in and how obscure that is, uh, you can work through your in-country partners, but you will be able to find out what are the standard mechanisms um, through which decisions are made and through which evidence normally gets put into those uh, processes and how can you um, work with those processes. And I think that people will ask questions if we don't follow those processes, it's, it's right and proper that we, that we try to. Um, in my experience, um, I'm 50-50 on whether I actually get time to submit evidence to all the consultations I would like to. I, I have a busy life. I don't want to work weekends. Um, uh, so, so yeah, sometimes I, I miss those deadlines. Um, so let's be realistic there. Uh, but also, uh, I think uh, it's important to recognise that uh, actually, well, hey, I gave evidence um, in this particular hearing or whatever it was. What happened to that evidence? What happened next? Uh, did that get written up? Who saw that report? What happened to that report? What policy processes did that feed into? We need to understand what happens next. And very often it is that what happens next that makes the difference between that evidence actually being heard and seen by the right person and actually feeding into the the right process so that actually it meets its mark. 
So a policy brief is a great way for me um, of doing this. And uh, policy briefs for me uh, have to not only be uh, about uh, just uh, representing the evidence, um, but there is a framing job that needs to be done. Uh, there is lots and lots and lots of evidence out there, um, and I'm not selecting that evidence uh, in a selective or biased way, but I am selecting it in terms of what is actually relevant for the policymakers in this context at this time and in this place. Uh, and there are some things which are more relevant than others. And so for me, the first step in any policy brief making process is to go out and find who are the people who are uh, in who who are demanding that evidence. Uh, what are the policy needs, the evidence needs, and uh, and can I now position that evidence to meet a specific need? Uh, and uh, based on the nature of that need, uh, I may well then frame that evidence in a way that makes it obvious as to how it meets that specific need with these particular bits of jargon that are in that policy process, which when I unpack and define and explain what those bits of jargon are, you can see exactly now why theoretically my research is 100% relevant to this. Uh, and if you look at it on the surface of things, um, and I'm doing this from my ivory tower without having done that preparatory work, it may look like my research is completely irrelevant because I'm using completely different terminology and jargon to communicate this, and it goes straight over people's heads and nobody actually understands why, why my evidence might be relevant for them. So we're doing that preparatory work so we can position this, um, we're choosing the most relevant research um, and, uh, and we're, we're then framing it in a way that will resonate with the policy people, processes, um, and the jargon that is being used at that time and place. And of course the language, uh, if we're working in a, a country which is uh, not using uh, a national language which is the same as ours. Uh, the, the next point here is, is very closely linked to this idea of, of making your work uh, relevant um, uh, and it's, uh, it's about making sure that we haven't then been selective with our evidence in that relevant space. Uh, and the temptation here is that uh, we only look at our own research. And as I said in part one, I've often been funded by my own research funders to create policy briefs based on my research. We need to ask ourselves, how can we synthesize? How can we shortcut people to the rest of that evidence? Um, and go back to part one if you want to find out more about uh, different ways in which you can do that. Um, uh, the next step is uh, that, okay, I've made this relevant uh, and I've synthesized uh, in a, a balanced way the evidence. And, and yes, I've maybe highlighted my evidence in a box or kind of in, in the two middle pages or whatever it is, um, but, but I've done this in a, in a, in a responsible way. Uh, I need to make sure that this is now written in a way that is understandable. Uh, and for me, uh, as academics, no matter how good we might think we are at science communication, uh, communicating with policymakers, get some help here because uh, you are blind to your own jargon. Um, uh, so, uh, so for me, I will get someone from my funding organisation, I will get uh, a project manager, uh, someone uh, who I, I think may be less in my little academic bubble to have a read through this and say, yeah, that makes sense. And what? I, I don't understand that. Um, uh, and I'm now uh, either defining my terms uh, or I'm just translating those academic terms into plain English. 
So uh, it's relevant, it's responsible, it's understandable. Um, this is really targeted now to the right people at the right place at the right time. Uh, and uh, my final step before I'm actually now taking this to the, the policy world is I stress test it. Uh, this is something that I do that not uh, not everyone does, um, and it's not for the faint-hearted. Uh, uh, there are some uh, of my colleagues who really dislike um, what I do in this particular space. So uh, take this with a pinch of salt, decide for yourself if you like this idea or not. Um, but I like to stress test policy briefs, in particular that are on um, highly contentious issues. So uh, I've got a particular uh, policy issue that I think I've got evidence on, uh, and I'm now taking this out to the to 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 the two extreme ends or multiple extreme ends of that debate, um, and I'm saying, what do you think? And I'm inviting people to shoot holes in my arguments and in my evidence, uh, and. Uh, in some cases, uh, in a lot of cases, in fact, um, people don't like the evidence, and so they try and shoot holes in it, um, but actually the evidence still very much stands, um, uh, and now I've flushed out the arguments that people will use in order to try and undermine or delegitimize that evidence base, so that when I actually take this policy brief now into the public space, uh, I can predict some of the most challenging uh, issues that people might bring up, and I've already pre-prepared my arguments to explain why, in fact, this evidence still stands and why it is, in fact, robust. Um, and I'm much more likely to stand up to that, uh, that public scrutiny. Uh, of course, uh, the, the other thing that might happen is that, uh, that people actually identify flaws in my argument or flaws in my evidence. Uh, now, uh, if, especially if I've not managed to do uh, some kind of uh, systematic review or rapid evidence synthesis, uh, and this has been more of a narrative review based on my expert knowledge, the expert knowledge of my team to contextualize our latest findings, uh, I, am, uh, I am fallible. I may well have missed something important, and now someone comes in and says, yeah, but what about that paper? What about that data source? That seems to directly contradict what you are saying in your policy brief. And if that's the case, I'm going to interrogate that. I'm reading that paper. I'm looking at that evidence. Uh, and in some cases, in my experience, uh, I have actually actually revised my policy brief and said, OK, uh, there is not robust enough evidence yet to say anything reliable on this particular issue. And I change from what seemed to be a clear evidence-based statement which might have fed into a policy option to, you know what, actually we're not saying anything at this point on this because the jury looks like it's still out based on what came out of my stress testing. So really important, I think, if we're going to do this in a robust way that stands up to scrutiny, um, uh, if there is actually a problem with my argument or uh, the robustness of the, the data or the research that underpins this, that I know that in advance and I'm not blindsided by someone popping up and saying, hey, what about this, when this is already in the public domain, this is not going to look good on me, and it's going to confuse people and undermine trust. So um, uncomfortable, uh, but I would argue uh, important. And then the final thing that for me the stress testing process does is it tests my, my framing of the issue. 
Uh, and very often what I find at this point is that people actually misunderstand my arguments because they are coming from such a different world, from such a different place, that, uh, that actually the way that I framed this is uh, really unhelpful uh, for them. Uh, and they are reacting now to my framing and throwing this out and objecting to the, the, the outcomes of this, the, the policy options, based on the way in which they've been framed and actually not based on any of the evidence. And when you can disentangle those two things and you can spot that actually the all of the holes people are shooting in this is actually about the, the framing uh, around this and not in terms of the evidence, uh, then in some cases it is possible to look at that framing and say, well, okay, that's how you understand these issues. That's what looks like it's most important to you. That's the thing that seems to be quite offensive or whatever it is that you've spotted from, from the stress test. Uh, and now can I legitimately reframe this to an extent? So this is less contentious, less offensive, uh, that it will resonate more strongly with more different groups, uh, but respecting the fact that that evidence remains exactly as it was, it's just a slight change in, in the framing. Uh, and this is this is where it gets contentious, uh, and I've done this before. Um, and one of my colleagues uh, has come back to me and said, "Look, this is this is completely inappropriate uh, because you're changing the evidence." Um, uh, and I was able uh, to to articulate and explain, "Well, actually, this is what the evidence was, and this is what the evidence is now, and you can see the evidence is the same. I just changed the framing, uh, and for me, that is how I make sure that this resonates and that it meets its mark." Um, he still actually wasn't happy with that, um, uh, but for me I felt that I was still on a robust enough um, uh, footing to be able to go into the policy environment uh, with that reframed approach to, to the evidence. Now I'm going into the the policy world, um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and at this point this is where the stakes start to become a lot higher. Uh, now, uh, already we're increasing uh, the risk to your time at this point. Uh, it's going to take you a lot longer to research this. I'm going and I'm talking to actual members of the policy network, whether they are uh, politicians or more likely, in my case, uh, civil servants, uh, or other people in this policy network who dynamically come in and out of contact and uh, influence with the policy community, so the third sector, for, for example. Um, but that's, that's effort, that's time that is taken to research how I position this, to stress test, to get feedback, to revise, to re-revise, etc. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to argue at this point that this is unambiguously a good thing. And yes, that might be a risk. But for me, that is a risk you have to take if you're going to bother putting together a policy brief. Because otherwise, you are, I would argue, very likely to be wasting your time. Yeah, you've got this beautifully designed policy brief um, that you've now put out to the world. But it is probably going to miss the mark. Um, uh, it's 50-50 at least. Uh, maybe you get lucky. But, uh, but for me, that's not a chance I want to take in terms of wasting time doing this from within my ivory tower. So let's uh, hope that you're still with me here. We're going to take that risk to our time, and we're only going to bother doing this if we're willing and able to put aside the time to do this properly, and we take this relational approach to writing our policy brief, respecting that the evidence is the evidence throughout. Um, uh, now I'm, I'm going into this, uh, into this world uh, with my policy brief. 
And uh, for me, the two ways in which I would do this would be one-to-one. So by the time in March I'm going out to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, um, uh, I will have a policy brief uh, with me. Uh, It's going to be a a draft policy brief asking for their feedback uh, on this, um, which for me is a a great way of actually getting policy impact at the same time as getting buy-in and ownership over that process uh, and feedback, doing that stress testing so that now we've got something even more robust, which I now do with those members of the policy community. Um, uh, So one-to-one, whether it's the final piece or a fairly good draft or something that I believe in and think is robust, but I'm getting feedback on from someone influential. Um, uh, or I'm doing this in the policy seminar type situation, which is what I'm doing tomorrow in, in Westminster. Um, uh, so uh, two policy briefs uh, on uh, people's chairs as they come in. Um, uh, but it's me now talking through what are the key things um, and why those might be sensible things to do based on the evidence. Uh, but opening up to questions. For me, this is the crucial point now because, well, hey, uh, who knows, maybe actually there's something slightly faulty with this, even although I've gone through that stress testing process. Um, and I already know that um, uh, in the, the title of my presentation, I've changed the uh, the policy brief. Uh, there is one word that uh, a number of people in that policy community have objected to um, that, uh, that I've got to come back from already. Um, so my stress testing uh, process clearly didn't work as well as it should have done. Um, uh, uh, but uh, but I, I can now uh, take those questions, those objections. Well, yeah, but it doesn't work in this context. And what about this? And what about that? Uh, and maybe I have some answers that says, well, actually, it does work because of this. And this is how I would use it in that context. And uh, maybe I don't know all of the answers, but there's a conversation to be had. And let's go back. And I'm going to do some reading. I'm going to get some colleagues on the case. Um, give me a name, I'll come back to you on some of this stuff. And now what uh, might be a policy brief which is about to crash and burn, oh, it turns out this isn't as relevant as people thought it might be, uh, I actually bring back from the brink because, hey, you know what, now adaptively in answer to questions I can explain why this is relevant, I can pull out the things that for that group at that time will make sense. Uh, And for me, uh, the biggest challenge is that we're going to be getting an update um, on Brexit policy in this particular department at the very beginning uh, of this whole thing. Um, uh, And I don't know exactly what the cutting edge is, and it may be that that debate has already moved on way beyond the stuff that I'm suggesting based on my research. Uh, And uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure whether I will be able to adapt that quickly and that significantly, depending on what I hear at the beginning of that session. We will see. Uh, But it is that potential for adaptive reframing selection of stuff that hey okay i'm going to zoom in on this one aspect now that is still relevant and focus on that rather than you writing this whole thing off at this point um and of course the the risk at this point is that someone asks you a question um and uh, and it all goes horribly wrong at this point so uh, uh in poland uh, last week um the uh, former head of the green party in the uk was in the in the audience um, and uh, and at one point uh, she actually heckled me uh, while I was talking um, in relation to Brexit um, because I was talking about post-Brexit policy, which she uh, argued was not going to happen. Um, uh, and I, uh, I I acknowledged, but kind of 
have kept moving because for me um, coming out on one side or the other of that debate um, it puts me politically positioned to me which is not something that I want to do um, certainly not on a, on a platform like that uh, and then she asked me the, the most politically charged question that I've probably ever had um, uh, it was a class based uh, question um, as well as uh, having a whole series of moral and ethical undertones which is uh, of, of huge contention uh, at the moment um, in UK policy um, uh, and um, uh, luckily uh, I had enough time to think about it that I came out with an answer that I was happy enough with uh, at the end um, but uh, but in terms of my, my plan A uh, you know when someone's asking a question you're thinking to yourself huh here's one way I could answer this hmm not sure about that here's another way I could answer this and you hope they ask and they waffle long enough that you've had a chance to think of a better answer than your plan A in my case my plan A would probably have gotten me into significant trouble. Um, and I realised uh, as she was talking, no, that is not the right answer, at least not in this public forum. Um, uh, and I had a plan B by the time she'd finished that I was okay with. But hey, maybe you don't have that time. Maybe you go with your plan A and you realise as you're speaking that you've now put in your foot in it and you're in some big political mess. You've offended a whole lot of people or whatever it is. Um, so, uh, so, 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 yeah, high risk now to your reputation um, as well as your time, as you take this into the real world. But I would argue at this point that you are now significantly more likely to have impact. Not only have you adaptively uh, discussed this and enabled those in the audience to understand what it's about, uh, to really interrogate the evidence base behind this and really get to grips with it, but I want to understand why it is genuinely relevant to them, if it is of course. Um, uh, you've also been able to look these people in the eye and they've been able to look you in the eye and they've seen your body language and there is a sense of, yeah, this person knows what they're talking about. This person is an expert in their field and this is someone that I could do business with. There is now the start of a conversation, the start of a relationship with these people. Which then leads me to the final point, uh, which is, well, what happens after uh, these things and how can we follow these up so I've already talked um, I think a couple of episodes ago about uh, my postcard to your future self which I'll be using tomorrow uh, to GDPR compliance um, and systematically get a sense of who is in that room and what are their issues and how can we follow up and help um, support them um, as they use evidence uh, after the event um, but uh, for, for, for me, uh, there, there are, broadly speaking, two approaches to this, um, uh, and I'm going to suggest there's a bottom-up and there's a top-down to this. So the, the bottom-up, for me, is identifying individuals. Um, this can be in uh, a meeting like this, so I'm going and I'm talking to people, I'm making myself available during the breaks, etc. I'm identifying these people so that there are genuine conversations happening on the day that I then follow up, I take their business card, I email them, uh, I, I follow up from there, from the bottom-up, based on whoever is there. Um, the other approach is that I might use a stakeholder analysis uh, to systematically try and identify in my particular country, policy organisation, whatever, uh, who are the people who deal with evidence in this organisation and who are the people who deal with evidence um, in my field on the issues that I think my research is most relevant to for this organisation. 
Uh, and usually you can do that um, through uh, an internet search. Uh, if not, uh, I would do this through my networks, starting with more engaged academics who work with that department, for example, uh, or in that issue space, um, or, or others who work with those policymakers to try and work out who are the people who work on these evidence type issues. Great, so I've identified a person uh, and I'm reaching out to them. Uh, and as I've said um, before, in terms of my use of stakeholder analysis, this is my empathic step where I'm trying to understand what are the issues that you're working on? What are the things that are stressing you out that you don't have time to do, that are major political pressures on you that you need most help with? Uh, whatever I can find. And then it's not just here I am, here's my research um, uh, and can you use it? in which case most people will not even reply to your email. It's um, So here you are, and from my understanding of the issues you're working on and the needs you have, I wonder whether I might have something that I could help you with, and can I meet up with you to explore whether me and my colleagues might be able to help you more in this space. Much more likely you get at least a telephone conversation, uh, maybe you can meet up with this person face to face, and again, you're looking them in the eye, there is that sense of, yeah, is this person trustworthy or not? Uh, they can interrogate you, they can ask questions, you can get a sense of, yeah, this person is, um, is, is trustworthy, they have expertise, um, it's worth continuing the conversation. Uh, and uh, and for most of the people that, that I work with, um, and these are people typically at, at low levels, but it could be a key person at a high level um, uh, in these policy networks, uh, they will all have people that they go to um, as trusted advisors. Many of them are within their own organization, and in some cases they may be academics, but it's quite rare that they are in fact academics. And uh, I'm going to these people and, um, uh, and, uh, and I'm making myself available. And it's important that it, it is a genuine offer of help. And it's not uh, some kind of thing that is just about, I want you to use my research. And if you're not going to use my research, I'm not interested. Because the chances are, uh, it is possible that they say, yeah, I want some help. Uh, and actually, it's kind of to the side of your research. Um, and you have to be able to, to help selflessly whether that's you doing that work or signposting them to others, that you make sure deliver on time, understandable to a high level uh, of robustness uh, so that you actually are able to genuinely help people where they're at with their current needs. Um, and you can then earn the, the role of trusted advisor. It's not an official position, but you then become that person's go-to on these issues because they know that uh, whether or not this is in your interests, whether or not this is your research, you can help them access the evidence, the people, the networks they need to get what they need on time to standard and understandable. And that is hugely valuable to, to most people in these, in these positions because you're saving them time, you're increasing the rigour of their job and helping them to do a better job. Uh, so, so great. This is about public service. I mean, you have to be up for that. And that's why this now is really high risk in terms of, of, of your time. Uh, and so for me, um, uh, and, and this process over the next two years, um, this is a significant chunk of my time that I'm putting into this. It's a significant chunk of postdoc time, project time, um, uh, networks, uh, making sure that I deliver. Um, whether or not this is actually relevant to my research, uh, it's about making sure that I help and that we achieve impact based on evidence, whoever's evidence that might be. 
Um, uh, so at this point now, we start to be able to kind of move up the way. So if you have started at the very bottom with the most junior members of staff, you've built trust there, then as they move to new roles, uh, you're uh, asking if they can introduce you to their successor during their handover. You're offering them an hour by phone, uh, all the basic stuff you need to know based on the evidence coming into your new role. Most people will instantly say yes, and you start building that new relationship, uh, but you're shortcutting it because you can't recommend it from their predecessor. So uh, they very often will then recommend you in uh, in organisation. Uh, oh, you're needing more information on that. You should talk to Mark. He's he, he knows all of the people on this. He can help you get this information. Uh, great. So you're now uh, actually often directly interacting with people at much higher levels that would have been invisible to you in the organisation. And even if they were visible, they probably would never have replied to your email in that first instance. Great. And maybe even you're getting to pitch uh, ideas directly to the people now who are briefing ministers, the, the delegations to these UN conventions going on those conventions, uh, those visits with them potentially, who knows, um, because of that position that, that you built on the trust and the social capital that you have, uh, that you, they know that you're not just in this for, for your own benefit. Uh, the the final part of this this kind of pincer movement as I'm describing it is to come from the top down and this is really not for the, the faint-hearted um, uh, but you're now making friends with the people who go for lunch with the policymaker who golf with that person uh, who uh, are, are friends with them who are trusted by them already um, uh, and, and for me, you have to be very, very careful, very selective here. Um, and this is about uh, identifying people that you can trust, that you can work with, because at this point, things can go very badly wrong if you trust someone who is quite happy to cherry pick, distort, or in other ways, drag your name through the mud for their own benefit. Uh, so in my case, uh, looking across this policy network, uh, I could see that the International Union for the Conservation of Nature um, had a high degree of influence. It was very much an evidence-based organisation um, uh, uh, by its precepts, uh, the way in which it's, it's organised, it's not allowed to lobby government. Uh, government is actually part of this. Uh, they, each of the devolved administrations in the UK sit on uh, this uh, IUCN's UK uh, sorry, UK. Um, committee. Uh, so, so by definition, we can't <laughs> lobby government. So for me, this was a very safe place uh, for me to, to work. Uh, and I became research lead for their UK peatland program, um, which was uh, one of the ways in which I was then able to uh, pitch uh, my research at the levels I was able to, um, uh, to the, the two people in the UN that then led to my uh, meeting in Poland and um, my subsequent meeting in uh, in Rome, because this is now not just me. Uh, these are much deeper, longer-term relationships with the organisation that I work with. Uh, and although you may not quite know me or trust me at this point, you know and trust that organisation. Um, uh, and so this is a way in which I can now reach much higher levels um, and, uh, and shortcut that process uh, because I'm now trusted by proxy. Now, of course, I have to earn that trust, which is for me why I felt so embarrassed that I'd asked the question about... Um, uh, whether or not uh, this program had had impact yet and discovered that we hadn't and worried that perhaps that looks bad in terms of the trust I was trying to, to build there. Who knows how that did come across. Um, uh, but but for, for me, this is now a, a big opportunity um, to to draw on that that broader, longer term base 
of, of trust to operate at much higher levels. And in many of the cases, for me, actually, this is about me feeding stuff to the director of this organisation, who is the actual person who's talking to the high-level politicians in this space. Um, and I'm perhaps going to London in, in many cases. I'm briefing him as he goes in. These are the red lines in terms of what the evidence says and what it doesn't say. Uh, this is how far you can go, debriefing him as he comes out um, uh, and, uh, and enabling that organisation to do better policy-based uh, work uh, as it informs government um, based on evidence, not just from my research clearly, but from much broader a field as well. So what I've tried to do now is to take you along a, a relational spectrum. And at this point, we are, uh, as far as I go, certainly, and I do know many others who go much further than this, but if this is as far as I feel comfortable going uh, in terms of getting uh, much more empathic, relational, adaptive, uh, so that I am able to use the evidence available to me to now get this in front of the right person at the right time to make a difference. I'm not leaving this to chance. I'm not just publishing a paper and hoping someone reads it, someone finds it. I'm not even just making a policy brief and sticking it out on social media, posting it to hundreds of people. Uh, I am not leaving this to chance. I am now trying to put this in front of the right people in ways that they can interrogate, that they can look at deeply, that build relationships that build trust that increases significantly the chance that, uh, that that decision is in fact based on the broadest possible evidence base and that we get a better decision uh, as a result of that. The risks of this, uh, as I hope are now clear, are massive in terms of the time you have to invest to make this stuff happen um, uh, and the reputational risks that, that come with that. Uh, I hope that uh, by by drawing out my own experience from last week, uh, you get a sense of the rewards of that, uh, as well as the embarrassment and uh, and the challenge uh, around when these things don't quite go uh, according to plan. And my hope is that for each of you listening to this, that you will take one step more relational, one step more influential, even if it's a small step that, you know what, I'm going to make my next policy brief a slightly different way. And I'm going to invest a bit more time in this. I'm going to do this in a way that will have much more impact. One small step more relational, but with our eyes wide open to the risks and mitigating those risks as far as possible. So this is uh, the final uh, episode of this year. Um, I'm going to be taking uh, a slightly longer break than usual over Christmas this year. I've got a wee operation, so I'm going to be uh, on sick leave over Christmas uh, for the next five weeks. So uh, no more podcasts uh, until uh, well into January, maybe even February. Um, we'll see how long it takes for me to recover. Um, uh, I will be releasing a, a Christmas blog. I'm halfway through writing a Christmas blog and I'll put out a newsletter to you as well with uh, all the latest uh, resources and cool things that I've been reading, finding out about uh, using in my own uh, research on impact and in my own efforts to achieve impact from uh, from my research. Uh, so uh, if you haven't yet subscribed to our newsletter, if you just go to our website, fasttrackimpact.com, there is a subscribe button at the bottom of every page or go to the contact page and you can see it very very prominently there. Um, 
I just send out uh, newsletters when I've got something useful to say. So uh, sometimes I'll go for six months without anything. Uh, others you'll uh, you'll get uh, once a month. Um, uh, but it's uh, all of the latest stuff from Fast Track Impact, um, from uh, my reading of the literature. Uh, the one thing they all have in common is it's all evidence-based. Uh, I am a researcher. That is what we do in Fast Track Impact. It's about evidence-based guidance and training for, for impact. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah. Sign up for that um, and and stay in touch. Uh, the emails come directly from me. Uh, a lot of people who get the email just directly reply, hey, that's really interesting, start a conversation. Whether it's via email, whether it's reaching out to me via social media based on what you've heard in today's podcast, uh, I welcome you, I invite you to, to get in touch with me and start a conversation with me uh, as well as uh, your policy community uh, as uh, a resolution for 2019. We can do more relational, more impactful work. Yes, there are risks involved, but we can, when we go into this with our eyes wide open, actually do impact in a much more relational, influential and impactful way.